afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs, and one can also audit such a course at a less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Our speaker this afternoon is Jim Howe. He served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Coast Guard for 27 years, rising to the rank of captain. He was stationed aboard cutters for a total of 11 years, with five years in command. During his time at sea, he gained extensive experience in maritime law enforcement, search and rescue, and national security missions. His recent book, Red Crew, Fighting the War on Drugs with Reagan's Coast Guard, describes his first-hand experiences chasing smugglers and saving lives in the waters off South Florida aboard a one-of-a-kind flotilla of high-speed patrol boats. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming out. It's, I know it's really hot out there. Um, uh, first, I'll just say I'm, I'm a recovering Coast Guard officer. Uh, it's the type of job you do, you just love every minute of it. I did it for 27 years. I'd do it again if I weren't old and lumpy and uh, way, way past my prime. Uh, but I did write a book I want to talk about. I also want to talk a little bit about what's happening with drug interdiction today, and also some of the challenges we face on the southwest border, which you hear about every single day in the news. And are there lessons that we've learned from the maritime war on drugs, which has been going on now for you know, almost two generations, that can be applied to what's happening on the southwest border? So if I could, a little bit about the Coast Guard. You might not, obviously there's probably no Coasties in the room, I'm guessing. But uh, we are an armed force of the U.S. all the time by, by Title 10 of the U.S. Code. So we're one of the five designated armed services. Uh, we're also uh, been around for a while, since 1790. Uh, we're pretty small. We've got less people in the active duty Coast Guard than the New York Police Department has uh, patrolling the streets of Gotham City. Uh, but we are multi-mission. Okay, we do a lot of things. We do national security, we do law enforcement, we do search and rescue, we do maritime security. We do the whole panoply of things. It makes us very kind of nimble and multitasking uh, oriented. Um, and we have a pretty good fleet of cutters. A cutter is a ship that's more than 20, uh, 65 feet in length. And then we have a lot of boats and aircraft. Um, but we're the only military service that by law has law enforcement authority. So we could not only, you know, defend the nation, we can also arrest people who are breaking laws. And the Coast Guard Law Enforcement Authority is very, very broad. It stems all the way back to the days when we were formed as the Revenue Cutter Service in 1790, and they wanted to enforce all the customs laws. And they basically said, you can enforce everything if you're the Coast Guard. And that's what we do. So that's what this is all about. Um, uh oh, there we go. So I uh, wrote this book. Uh, it's a history of serving in the, uh, on the front lines of what they call the War on Drugs back when it was really spooling up back in the early 1980s. I got to sail with a really fantastic crew of of specialist law enforcement personnel aboard a fleet of brand new high-tech Coast Guard cutters. These were cutters that were better than anything the Coast Guard had had for small patrol boats at the time. And we made a lot of these. That was our goal, is to make drug busts. Every one of those symbols symbolizes the boat that you seize for drug smuggling. And our real goal was to keep people like this off the street. Okay, this is Carlos. Uh, we found Carlos with 3,000 pounds of marijuana in his lobster boat. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, in the background, in the red, is his wife, 
who was also part of the smuggling venture. I guess it was their small family business. And like all good government programs, our job was to disrupt small business. So we tried to keep them out of business. Um, why write the book? I actually wrote it for my kids. Uh, they had not understood what I had done prior to them coming along. And I wanted to write it down and self-publish and hand out a couple of copies for Christmas presents. But it came out better than I thought. I got a great publisher with the name of Institute Press. And they brought it into print. And uh, what I found, though, is in, in all of you as intellectuals, people who do research, uh, there was an actual gap in the historical literature. There is no description of the early days of the war on drugs, especially from the first-person narrative. So talking about these ships that were in place for you know, about a dozen years, there was nothing written about it. So this is actually filling a void in the historical record that I thought needed to be filled. Um, so going back, um, if you go back to the 1960s, now, the Coast Guard was kind of spread all over the, over the coast, kind of uniformly across the nation. Uh, and they weren't doing drug enforcement at sea. For the simple reason is drugs weren't moving by sea. Back then, almost all the marijuana, which was the drug of choice, was coming in from Mexico, from these huge marijuana plantations in Mexico. And what happened is, uh, in a bilateral move, the U.S. and the Mexicans teamed up to eradicate many of those plantations. They did aerial spraying of herbicides. Uh, things like Paraquat, and a lot of those marijuana plantations just went away. And so what happened then was there was a void in the supply chain that got filled, and it got filled mostly by people down in Colombia. The eastern half of Colombia is fairly mountainous in spots. It's perfect temperature for growing marijuana. It was a semi-governed, semi-lawless part of the country, and a lot of these marijuana plantations sprung up in eastern and northeastern um, uh, Colombia. And what would happen is, the Colombian growers would just take bales of marijuana and they would just pile it under whatever boat they could find and those boats would just drive north until they found a place to drop it off. Usually they would drop it off to smaller boats about 100 miles, 200 miles off the U.S. coast. They might go into the Bahamas where it could come across in speedboats. Sometimes they'd go right into the pier. I mean, there were drug busts made where a boat coming from Columbia would go all the way up to North Carolina or Texas and just stop at a dock somewhere and start offloading bales. And, Again, if the local law enforcement didn't see it, they would get away with it. Um, why were the smugglers so kind of cavalier in this? Is because their chances of getting caught were really, really small, about 5%, maybe less. There just wasn't much Coast Guard, and it really wasn't a focus. So the Coast Guard made its first drug seizure in 1973 as this kind of flotilla of drug-bearing vessels was continuing to head north. By, by 1983, we were seizing 2 million pounds a year. So you can see we went from nothing to two million pounds in just 10 years, pretty remarkable. Um, this is the first drug seizure I was ever involved with. It was 1981. The boat is called the Hopeful. It should be called the Dopeful because it was. Uh, it literally was crammed with marijuana in the fish hole and all the birthing areas in the pilot house. The guy driving the boat was sitting on bales of marijuana. And fortunately, this was a US vessel because it had been a foreign flag vessel back then, say a Panamanian fishing boat. It might have taken us three days or five days or a week to get permission to go on board, in which case they might have gone all the way back down to Panama or Colombia, which we would never catch them. So because it's a U.S. vessel, the Coast Guard has law enforcement authority anywhere in the world except the territorial nation or uh, the waters of another nation. In this case, we went on board, found the drugs, piece of cake, right? Uh, a week later, two weeks later, we find another guy with 15 tons on board. And that's kind of how it was back then. There's a lot of drugs moving in large bulk quantities. And that's going to change, as we'll see here later in the presentation. Uh, what the Reagan administration did is, if you've ever seen the movie Scarface with Al Pacino, there was a lot of crime in Miami. It was the cocaine trade, the marijuana trade, a lot of violence. 
you can't have drug smuggling and not have crime, is what it really boils down to. They're kind of two in one. So they sent a lot of people down on the shore side, the FBI, the DEA, to kind of clean up Miami and try to get those smuggling networks disrupted. At sea, we did three things. First is we tried to put our big ships in what are called the choke points between the land masses like uh, Cuba and Mexico. It's only 110 miles across. If you put a Coast Guard cutter there patrolling, it's easy to catch people coming north. If you go north or south of that, though, you're having to patrol a much wider area. So these choke points were natural places for the Coast Guard to patrol. Second was we really focused on the Bahamas. If you go back to the early uh, 80s, late 90s, or late 70s, uh, Bahamas was a mess. The smugglers pretty much ran the place in a lot of respects. The Medellin cartel owned an island by themselves. They would fly in DC-3 aircraft filled with drugs, drop it off into small speedboats, zip it across to Miami, and there was no one there to stop them. So the U.S. and Bahamian authorities teamed up in an operation called OPBAT, Operation Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, where the U.S. provides the resources, the helicopters, to fly the Bahamian drug agents around the islands and disrupt these networks. OPBAT is still in effect today, since 1982. It's one of the most unheralded but successful drug enforcement operations ever in the history of this country. And what it's done, it's allowed the Bahamas to emerge as a really you know, a fairly safe place where you can go as a tourist and spend your money, go to Atlantis, right? Okay, that wouldn't have happened had the druggies, you know, had their way because, again, with all the drug smuggling comes crime and corruption. And then the third piece, in the mid-1980s, we started doing a lot more operations down off the Wicker Peninsula, getting large loads of marijuana coming out of the peninsula. And all this added up to a fairly successful seizure rate. We went to, from getting less than 5% you know, somewhere in the 20 to 30% range, which is enough to really start crimping smuggling operations. In some, some cases, we shut down entire networks. Uh, and don't forget, if the Coast Guard doesn't catch you, you still have a chance of getting caught ashore once you get to the U.S. This is Operation Bahamas Turks. It's about a half a ton of cocaine that they, they picked up. Uh, the Reagan administration also directed a lot of ships from the Coast Guard to go down to Florida permanently. They moved them from places like New England. Uh, down to South Florida so that you had more steel on target, as they say in the military. More than doubled the amount of ships. But one of the really big things that happened was bringing in the Navy. Okay, until 1982, the Navy had nothing to do with drug interdiction. Nothing. Secretary of Defense Weinberger signed an order to allow detection and monitoring by the Navy. They started assigning Navy ships to help the Coast Guard. We would put Coast Guard boarding teams on the Navy ship. The Navy can't do law enforcement. We can if we found a smuggler boat. We would send our team over from the Navy ship, and it really, really helped leverage uh, their great capabilities and really put a crimp on the smugglers in a lot of ways. Um, I could show you literally hundreds of pictures like this of loads of marijuana and cocaine in every possible guise. Okay. Now, one of the things that was really missing from the mix, though, were the near-term, near-shore patrol boat fleet. The Coast Guard had a fleet of kind of old. Older, slower, not real capable for chasing down high-speed druggies type of boats. And so we bought three of these. This was a temporary measure. Congress gave us some money. They said you got three weeks to spend it, $14 million. So we bought three of these uh, offshore oiler rig supply boats. They're really fast. Uh, they're really cool. I'll tell you why in a minute. And we turned them into these. Okay, these really nice Coast Guard cars. They're called Surface Effect Ship. Well, Surface Effect Ship is a ship that actually semi-hovers above the water. We pressurize air, uh, pump it underneath the catamaran hulls of this vessel, and then it um, will literally raise up about halfway out of the water and really go high speed. So that ship, 
normally would do about 20 knots. When it's kind of got the air pumped underneath, it does 30 knots. Uh, pretty incredible. It's also about uh, 15 feet longer than the Coast Guard patrol boats of the era, but it's also really, really wide. Okay, and that makes it stable when you're in bad weather, and it means you have a lot of room to put things like people you've arrested, migrants you've rescued, if you have a cruise ship and you have to get a lot of people evacuated off it for some reason, you can put them on deck. It's just really a, a pretty interesting platform. You can see here the three surface effect ships that we got lined up, and in the lower right-hand corner is one of the older 95-foot patrol boats. Big difference. Big difference. Uh, and this is the underside. In front, you would normally have a big rubber gasket that would hang there to hold the air in place, but that's what it looked like on the underside of these vessels. Again, they did about 30 knots pretty quick. And uh, the Navy had their own version of it. Theirs was a little bit longer. And at one point, uh, we actually spent uh, a couple months of the Navy helping us out in the law enforcement. Um, we formed what was called a division of cutters. The Coast Guard had, had a specific division of cutters since the Vietnam War, uh, when we had a bunch of patrol boats over there helping out the South Vietnamese. So we brought in about 100 people, and we uh, had a shoreside support staff to keep these ships running all the time. And what we did, every ship did not have a crew assigned straight to that ship. We had four crews and three ships. And you're thinking, huh, that's kind of weird. So you would rotate amongst the ships, and one of the crews was always not on a ship. And they would be back ashore resting and helping out with the support. What that allowed was for you to keep the physical ships at sea about a third more than you normally would. So they'd be out for 240 days a year with various crews manning them. And we, as the people, would only be out to see 180 days, which is the typical standard for Coast Guard crews. So we had the gold crew, the green crew, the red crew, and the blue crew. I was the executive officer on the red crew. Um, we even had our own little logo, El Tiburon, the shark. Uh, and our job was to gobble up those nasty bills of marijuana that were out there. Uh, that's your red crew. Two people are missing from this picture. Again, not real big, only 16 of us. So we'd go out for a week or two weeks at a time on one of these ships. We'd go all over the place. Um, we had some great people. Chad here, uh, he's from the Outer Banks of North Carolina. He had a lot of experience in driving small boats in really bad weather. And if you uh, do read the book someday, it's got a great opening story of us trying to save a tug that was being blown by a storm onto a, a sensitive coral reef. The tug had lost power, and our job was to try to keep this tug from going aground, especially since it was towing a propane barge that was fully loaded. Uh, in, a, in a sensitive ecosystem. So at one point during that rescue, we had to send over some fresh batteries to that tugboat in 15-foot waves. So we had to put our little rubber boat over the side, and Chad here drove it. I thought he was going to die, but he did it with a smile on his face the whole time, no problem, because he was really, really good at that. We had young kids right out of boot camp. We had kids who really liked to fish. Uh, we had you know, a really uh, kind of tough-looking crowd there. That's our cook and our chief engineer. We had another guy who really liked to fish. Uh, <laughs> Bill was uh, probably the biggest surprise. He was an engineer, but it turns out he also really knew how to drive speedboats fast. I'll talk more about that in a minute. So this was our area of operations. We worked out of Key West, but we pretty much were there to cover the western Bahamas and the South Florida region. Here's a better picture, though. You can see all the light blue. The light blue is water that's shallow enough where the typical older Coast Guard ship could not go or would not go. So these were areas where the drug smugglers had just kind of taken over. They would just kind of at will be driving across these shallow areas and never expecting the Coast Guard to show up. So we started to show up. 
and they were really, really surprised to see these big, loud, fast, wide ships all of a sudden in their playground. The Bahamian authorities, they had very limited resources, so we were there to help them out. We couldn't go within three miles of Bahamian territory, but all the rest is international waters. So we did a lot of mopping up in these areas, finding a lot of drug smuggling adventures. You see also in the, in the bottom there, it looks like sand dunes underneath the water, and that's exactly what they are. Those are called sand bores. And you've got really deep water to the north and really shallow water to the south. And it's sometimes we had to go through those sand bores where you really can't see how deep the water is. It's really, really hairy. We had to do that at night a couple times. It was pretty, pretty scary. Also, the greenish colored water and kind of up towards the top of the screen, those are coral fields. We'll talk about more about that in a minute. But um, you don't want to get stuck in that coral field because if you're in there, you might not come out. Um, so we got to work. Uh, our crew was commissioned in 1983. We uh, got out there and started boarding every boat we could find. And the idea was to you know, establish Coast Guard presence, let the people know that we're out there, and, and mop up as many smugglers as you could. We did a lot of search and rescue along the way, and the Coast Guard, as I said, is multi-mission. So if we found a boat in distress like this Mexican fishing boat, we towed it back to shore, helped them out. Uh, we even had a nice encounter. This is a USS Jubilant, it's a U.S. Navy ship from World War II that was later sold to the Mexican Navy. Well, at one point, for some unknown reason, this boat pulled up alongside our ship in international waters and held us at gunpoint and insisted that we were violating the Mexican territorial sovereignty. So it was one of those kind of bad days at sea that you might hear about once in a while, having a whole bunch of guns pointed at you. It had to get resolved diplomatically as, you know, we uh, were sweating it out, hoping not to get, get killed which we weren't. Uh, we think that maybe the guy running that ship was under the sway of the drug smuggling cartels. But we don't know. We ne never know what happened. It was a very interesting uh, situation, to say the least. Um, this is Carlos's boat. That's his 3,000 pounds of marijuana. And it was originally hidden up forward in the boat. It was not hard to find. It wasn't real quality marijuana. It would probably been stored on an island somewhere. It was kind of rotten, smelled bad. But it was 3,000 pounds of contraband, so we had to you know, arrest them and put them in jail. Um, one of the trends that started to happen, though, is the Coast Guard flowed these resources as the Navy joined the fight. As we got better at our job, the smugglers had to get crafty. They had to figure out ways to get around the drug interdiction you know, assets out there. So one of the things they started doing was using secret compartments. And in this case, we got these three boats. We found them actually offloading. The bigger of the three boats had about two tons of marijuana on board, and it was loading it onto the smaller boats when we came across them at midnight. And we chased the smaller boats around for a while, we got those two. We went back on board the larger boat, we looked around, we couldn't find the marijuana. Where, where is it? Well, in the old days, the Coast Guard had to kind of be a beat cop. You just, if you saw something, you would arrest people, it was obvious. But now we had to be more like detectives. So we had to look for clues. Where would you hide marijuana on a boat? And what we eventually found was, if you opened that cabinet and you pried up the floorboard, there was an opening into the fuel tank. And the fuel tanks of this boat were filled not with fuel, but with marijuana. Pretty interesting arrangement. That was not the hardest uh, type of secret compartment to find. Uh, this boat here was the most difficult one I, I've ever seen, quite frankly, to this day. It's probably one of the most difficult one you'll ever find. That boat is a very nice 35-foot sport fisherman. It's in pristine condition. It was boarded by a Coast Guard team working from a Navy ship. They found nothing wrong. A couple of nice guys on board were out having a buddy weekend away, fishing in the Bahamas. But when they got back to the Navy ship, one of the boarding party looked down and found that on his trousers was a streak of wet white paint. 
And he just thought that was weird because he'd seen no sign that they'd been painting on the boat. People typically don't paint their boat when they're out at sea. Why would there be wet paint? So they called us on the radio. We boarded the boat the next day with the sole purpose of trying to find out, is there something anomalous about this or is it just, uh, who knows? Well, we found the source of the paint and it was a little square, about four inches by four inches at the juncture of two of these structural members in the engine room. And as we started build up the clues, we found that the entire engine room was made for disassembly. So we started taking it apart. And after three hours of working, we found that you could physically move these huge fuel tanks and crawl around the back side of them and find a secret compartment. It was really one of these things where you just had to do the Sherlock Holmes routine and just kind of follow clue after clue after clue. And, and lo and behold, we got these guys. But it was just all because of one little streak of wet white paint on a guy's uniform led us to do the reporting. So we got, we got these guys as well. Um, here's some other secret compartments. This boat had compartments on the outside of its hull underneath the waterline. So the Coast Guard had to have it hauled out of the water and bring down the jaws of life to pop open the compartment. You see it in the keel of a uh, sailboat here. This is a, uh, a large freighter that uh, the DEA suspected had uh, cocaine on board. They called the Coast Guard. When the Coast Guard got on scene with this guy, you notice the back end, the stern of the boat is down in the water. People on board had actually flooded the engine room intentionally. They were trying to sink this ship, this huge ship. They were trying to sink it. And the reason they were trying to sink it is because what was found later in its cargo of powdered zinc. This is five tons of cocaine. It, at the time, was the largest cocaine seizure ever made in the U.S. Okay, and it, that's why they were trying to get rid of the evidence by sinking the ship. But the Navy came in with a salvage team, helped the Coast Guard save the day, and we got the, got the smugglers as well. Another trend was the move towards high-speed vessels. Okay, that vessel on the right was found going from Columbia to Haiti and back. That's 400 miles each way, 800-mile round trip. It could do it at about 40 knots, which is really, really fast. It's faster than any Coast Guard ship. And there was no way to stop these guys. They could carry about a ton of pot or cocaine or whatever they want on board, and there's just no way to stop them because our cutters couldn't catch them. You know, how, how are you going to stop these guys? So they started using these boats for open ocean voyages. Uh, once in a while, you might be lucky and encounter them, you know, face to face. Uh, once in a while, you might get lucky like this ship here. This is my last ship. We got to catch this small speedboat. The reason we caught them was not because we were faster or even smarter. It's because they weren't smart enough to check the weather channel before they left port. And they got into kind of stormy weather. We could still do our max speed of 18 knots. They could not do their max speed of 35 knots. They were doing like 12, and we were able to catch them because they just didn't pay attention to the weather. Uh, but for the most part, the Coast Guard had no way to stop this, this sort of smuggling until about 15 years ago, we came up with a new idea, and we would put specialized helicopters with big guns, and when we found a guy like this refused to stop, we would fire warning shots across their bow, and if they then refused to stop after that, we would shoot out their engine with a 50 caliber sniper rifle. Um, I've never heard anybody doing this, but last year we celebrated our 500th seizure using this technique. And what it literally did is it forced the smugglers to kind of abandon this sort of technique. They, they just don't do it as much as they used to because they know that if they get caught by this, there's really no escaping it. You can't escape a 50 caliber bullet. You just can't. Uh, now, this is a case that we had uh, on the Red Crew. Uh, that's a boat that we seized. It was about a 40 or 45-knot boat. And I don't think the guys driving it were too bright because our 30-knot boat intercepted them, and they stopped. 
and they put their hands up. And the guy with the big fish, Bill and I went on board, we arrested the people, we found everyone on board, we took them on board the cutter, and then we used this boat to chase down another smuggling boat that was about the same speed that our cutter couldn't catch. So I spent 90 minutes, probably the best 90 minutes of my professional life, zipping across very shallow Bahamian water in that boat, chasing down another smuggler. It was a lot of fun, but the point is, sometimes you have to be innovative and creative to try to get the bad guys. You can't talk about drug smuggling in the, in the Caribbean without talking about the people. If you know your history of Cuba, there was the 1980 Muriel boat lift, where the Castro regime allowed about 125,000 people to leave the country by boat to head up to Key West. This is one of the boats that was encountered in a very unsafe condition. Uh, since then, there's been a steady stream, probably 1,000 to 2,000 people a year, trying to leave Cuba by sea. Quite frankly, it's heartbreaking. Look at that beautiful little girl in the middle. They're trying to row 90 miles across shark-infested waters. Um, what can you say about that? Uh, this is a motorized boat that was intercepted by the Coast Guard. Um, a lot of creativity in some of these rafts. This is probably our all-time favorite. That's an actual old Chevy truck that they were trying to, uh, they had adjusted and taken the drive shaft and put a propeller on it and they were trying to motor their way across the Straits of Florida. The real problem with migrants, though, is not Cuba. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy unto itself. It's with Haiti. And if you know your history of Haiti, it's a very impoverished nation. It suffered from a string of brutal dictators, you know, going way back in history. Uh, and in the nine, early 1980s and late 1970s, a lot of people were leaving by sea on these very dangerous voyages. Now, you can count the faces there. I think you can find 35 faces. There's actually 110 people on it. Okay, and they're trying to go 600 miles in a boat with no radio, no life preservers, no flotation of any sort. If they get in any trouble, they're all going to go down and they're all going to probably die. It's a really sad thing. So uh, what happened was the Reagan administration, while also dealing with the drug problem, said, hey, we're not going to have to put up with this anymore. The estimates were in 1980 that 20,000 people left Haiti by boat that year, but only 10,000 showed up anyway. Now, where the other 10,000 went, I don't know. I know some of them died. Some of them probably showed up and just kind of went underground, or they went back home. Who knows? But a lot of people were being lost at sea. So what the Reagan administration did is they came to an agreement with the Duvalier dictatorship, and they said, we're going to patrol off the coast of Haiti, and a little bit more up by Florida, and if we find Haitian migrants, we're going to send them back to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. They'll get an asylum screening, and so if they had a legitimate credible fear, we will take them to the U.S., but most of these people won't. They're economic refugees, we're going to send them back, and the promise from the Duvalier regime had to be that they would not harass these people or harm them in, in any way. And that, that's the agreement that was put in place in 1982. It has survived through a string of different governments. It exists to this day. It is a very strong deterrent type of policy. It literally prevents people from getting in these sorts of boats and making a very dangerous 600-mile voyage where people are going to die. Um, in 1980, as I said, 20,000 people were estimated to leave. In 1982, two years later, because of this policy, the Coast Guard picked up 146 people. So a 99% improvement in the flow of people leaving. There have been some surges now and then, and there was one time when the Clinton administration changed the policy. We'll talk about it in one more, couple more slides. But for the most part, it's a very dangerous voyage that through deterrence, a lot of these uh, people are not, not getting in these boats, which is a really good thing. Uh, this boat here, anyone want to guess? Anybody? 100? What? 500. Ah, yeah. Euro. 410. A lot of people on that 60-foot boat. Okay, 410 people. Good guess. Thank you. Um, 
Here's a short video. Um, this is an intercept that happened in 2008. So this is still going on as we speak today. Um, you can see it's not a not bad weather. It's fairly light winds. There's a little bit of a swell running. Uh, so the Coast Guard cutter found this boat in the southeastern Bahamas. The boat had been at, at sea for about a day. Uh, they had no food, no water. Uh, again, no life preservers. That's the first thing we do is we hand out the life preservers. Uh, they had really no way to signal for distress. They didn't know where they were. They weren't quite sure. They, they knew if they kind of headed to the northwest, they might eventually get to the U.S. If you remember from the chart, to get to the U.S., you have to go through all those Bahamian nooks and crannies, which is a very dangerous thing. So here we are trying to you know, help these people out by handing out some survival gear. Um, and then things start going a little bit wacky here. Um, all of a sudden, there's a person in the water you'll see here in a second. And another person jumps off the boat and starts swimming towards the Coast Guard cutter. I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, you'll see that right here. And then just watch what happens to the boat itself. You know, you get a lot of people standing up now. Uh, these are very unstable boats. I'll just let the uh, video speak for itself. Ooh. So uh, just the act of people standing up uh, caused that boat to become unstable to the point where about 35 people fell in the water. So my question is, if they had encountered a thunderstorm with a typical 30 or 40 mile hour winds, if they had run into a reef line, if they had got into the surf anywhere in the Bahamas, would those people have had a chance? And the answer is probably no. So whether you like the policy or not, the deterrence does save lives and it keeps people from getting into these really dangerous voyages. Uh, thankfully here, everyone was picked up out of the water safe and sound, a few bruises, but no one was anything more than really, really scared. Uh, however, in 1994, on Mother's Day, the Clinton administration made an announcement they were going to change the policy of repatriation. They said, hey, if you get caught at sea, we're going to send you to a third country. They didn't define what those third countries were. And what that prompted, unfortunately, was a mass migration. A uh, total of about 35,000 people left by sea over the next couple of months. And it went from dozens a day to hundreds a day to, by early July of 1994, you had about 3,000 people a day being picked up off the coast in boats like this. This boat was found sinking. Uh, it had 212 people on board. There were no life jackets when we got on scene. We handed out life jackets, pulled it alongside the big cutter, and started to take people aboard before the boat went down. Unfortunately, we only got half of them off before this happened. They capsized. And uh, despite the best efforts of the Coast Guard crew, two people drowned. Now, my guess is, had the Coast Guard not been there, 212 people would have been in peril. But it's, it's tragic on its face to have two people die regardless. Uh, this is a case that we had, you, you could read about it in my book. It was um, unexpected, a Coast Guard aircraft uh, which was flying over the Bahamas in that little red circle in the middle of a coral reef found a boat that was stranded. They thought there were 50 people on board, it turned out there were more than 200. Uh, it was, at the time, the largest group of Haitians that the Coast Guard had ever encountered. We got to be there. Uh, we went in to make the rescue and couldn't get within three miles of them because of the coral. So we had to send our little rubber boat in and get on scene. And there's this heavily overloaded boat. They had already hit the ground a couple times. They were sinking. They were bailing water. They were stuck in like a coral cul-de-sac. The wind had died, and they had no way to go anywhere. And so what do you do with these people? Well, on top of that, there was a storm coming. And the storm was going to be uh, kicking the seas up from flat calm to probably six or eight feet. And my guess is it would have splintered that boat into pieces and they all would have gone in the water. And Lord knows what would have happened then. So 
you know, when your ship, your Coast Guard ship's three miles away, is kind of a captive of the deep water, and all you've got is your little rubber boat, what do you do? So that's one of the stories you read about in the book. It was just really a remarkable incident. Thankfully, we got, got through it without anyone getting hurt. Um, the whole idea, though, about the migrant situation, it's a humanitarian issue. I mean, we are saving lives, we're helping people, we treat them like people, we don't treat them like, you know, you would a smuggler that you just arrested and put the cuffs on, where you're not really uh, too worried about, you know, whether they're happy with you or not. These are people who are trying to get a better life, you have to have a lot of sympathy, but when you get them on your ship, you're going to have a lot of people to take care of. So here's one of our larger Coast Guard cutters, about 250 people, so you've got to feed, clothe, medical needs, whatever. Um, and when you're a small patrol boat, like I was on with a crew of 16 and taking care of 200 plus people, and five of them are, you know, at one point, you know, in, in serious medical need, and one old woman, the poor woman, her heart kept stopping, you have a lot of work to do, and that's what we had to deal with uh, back in those red crew days. Um, but again, it's all about the people. So on the drug, back to the drugs, where are we today? Well, the patterns have really shifted. Because the Coast Guard, the Navy got really kind of good in the Caribbean, a lot of the smuggling turned to the Western Pacific, or Eastern Pacific, okay, Eastern Pacific. Now the problem there is, this is a much more massive area to cover. You don't have choke points like you do between Cuba and Mexico with 110 miles wide. Now you're talking thousands of miles. Some of these smuggling routes are literally four or 5,000 miles long. And so how do you patrol that? Well, you can. So what we've gone to is intelligence-based interdiction, where if we know someone's going from point A to point B, we can be on the lookout for people on that route. And that's what we've kind of gone to. Uh, some of the seizures that have been made recently, the top two, that's the motor vessel Gatun. The DEA again said, hey, go on board. You'll like what you find. We went into one of the containers. The Coast Guard, they found 20 tons of cocaine. It's the biggest cocaine seizure ever made uh, at sea. And in the bottom, you see that really funky-looking boat with the, I guess, four engines. It was being refueled by that fishing boat, and that was an intelligence-based seizure. Uh, that boat was filled with uh, cocaine, so we got both of them, uh, one for smuggling and one for assisting helping the smugglers. Um, the bad guys are going to innovate, so sometimes they will tow these unmanned, we call them drones, just a big tube filled with, with drugs, they will tow it behind them, and if you come up, they will cut it loose and say, hey, it wasn't us, why are you bothering us, it wasn't us. Uh, or, this is actually my personal favorite when it comes to smuggler innovation, these are actual semi-submersible vessels, they, they operate right at the waterline, and they're built in the western Colombian jungles, and they will literally go thousands of miles up to Mexico loaded with cocaine. I mean, look at this thing. Would you get on board that? Well, they do. Uh, and our job is to find them. It's very, very hard because they're very stealthy. They don't leave much of a wake. You can't see them. They don't pick up on radar real well. So that's one of the huge challenges the Coast Guard Navy had, had in a huge expanse of the Eastern Pacific is how do you find boats like this? Now, the good news is the last three years, have been really, really good for the Coast Guard. 200 tons of cocaine each of the last three years. So amazing amounts of contraband. Uh, so, so that's a really good thing. Um, and what are the lessons that we've learned from all this? Okay, you've heard this before. When you squeeze a balloon, it pops up somewhere else. So when we squeeze the balloon on the Caribbean side, it popped up in the Pacific, right? Well, what happens when you do this? Okay, I'm not arguing for or against walls, but if you put up a wall, they're going to try to go around it, over it, or under it. Okay, maybe through it, but probably not. They're over, under, and so you got to think as you strategize. Once you put up the wall, what are the bad guys going to do 
I'm not talking about people you know, smuggling, I'm talking about drug smugglers who you're trying to deter here. Um, the second lesson is uh, you got to apply overwhelming force. We kind of did that in Bahamas. We did that in the, in the deep Caribbean for many years, and it really, it really worked. You could put serious smuggling networks out of business by bringing in a lot of resources. Okay, but we're really not doing that in the Eastern Pacific right now. Not because of a lack of desire, it's because we don't have enough ships and planes to cover that, that massive area. So when you talk about getting 200 tons of cocaine, that's only 11 or 12% of the amount of cocaine that's actually moving by sea, so one-eighth. So you're only getting one-eighth. In fact, about two out of three known smoking events, there aren't enough ships and planes to even respond to. So if you want to get serious about this, you're going to have to you know, make and build a lot more Navy ships and Coast Guard ships to go out there and find these guys. Third is if you do take over and kind of reclaim a, a certain territory like we did in the Bahamas, you got, you got to stay because the minute you leave, they'll come right back. It's kind of like roaches, you know, you chase them out of your kitchen, you turn out the light, you go to bed, and the roaches are right back, right? Okay, that's what smugglers are. They're roaches, and they will be right back the minute you, you leave. Um, fourth is this whole concept of pushing the borders out, because it's really the wholesale versus retail. If you, if you want to get really effective at interdiction, get the really big loads that are leaving kind of the factory before they're broken up into smaller loads. I mean, since like something like 70% of all cocaine coming into the country crosses the Mexican land border, well, how does it get to Mexico? Almost exclusively by sea, about 90%. So if you can get a ton, five tons, 10 tons, 20 tons at a time, that's hundreds of smaller loads that you've prevented from crossing that border later on. Uh, I, I used this picture earlier in the presentation. Anyone want to guess where that island is? Because this was a uh, drug interdiction mission. Uh, it's a place called San Ambrosio. Oh, I'm sorry, you were going to guess. San Ambrosio? Okay, good. Uh, San Ambrosio, which is 600 miles off the coast of Chile and 1,000 miles south of the equator. That's how far away some of these smuggling networks are operating. You know, literally thousands of miles from U.S. shores. But you can get large quantities if you're working out there. Um, they are going to always adapt. If you're familiar with the concept of the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, and act. It's a military thing. Basically, if you can get inside the decision-making kind of loop of the bad guys, you will win. Okay, so if you can adapt faster than they are adapting, you can knock them out of business. And we haven't been real good at that. The one area where we've been really good, for example, is shooting out their engines from the air with those helicopters. That has really put a lot of these smoking networks, they didn't know what to do about that. Uh, but when they come to you know, vessels like this, this, this semi-submersible thingamabob that's camouflage painted and really hard to find, you know, we've got to figure out a way to put them out of business and not let them adapt to the point where they can get ahead of us. Uh, and you also have to kind of accumulate your training. So the young petty officer or commissioned officer who is chasing down these sorts of vessels also needs to know how to chase down smuggling uh, tactics that we saw back in the early 80s, those secret compartments. You have to kind of know it all. And that applies to the land border. These guys who are picking up these border patrol people, picking up people in the middle of the desert, or the customs agent at the border crossings, they need to be alert to all the historical trends so they don't miss something. Yeah, you know, for folks that work in the uh, international affairs realm, this, this is so key. Um, the bilateral agreements we have with about every country in South America now that allows us to do law enforcement aboard their boats has been just a breakthrough. 
and the cooperation with every country in the region. Every country is helping out. Even at times, Cuba is helping out in the, in the drug war, and it's a really good thing. You know, Colombia was also another country that was in really, really bad trouble, trouble because of the uh, terrorist networks, the ELM, the, the FARC. Uh, a lot of that tied to drug smuggling. So us helping them and then helping us has been, has been a really good thing. And then finally, this is about the people side of this. You know, a migrant who is going to pick up their roots from Guatemala or Mexico or Haiti or China or wherever, that's a huge personal decision. And if you want to really deter them from making that decision to try to come here illegally without the proper paperwork, you want to deter them before they even start the voyage. And it has worked, for the most part, with Haiti. I mean, we've really cut down that flow from 20,000 a year to much, much smaller numbers, and it has saved uncounted numbers of lives. The question I would ask you is, you know, do our policies today really work when it comes to this border? And considering that they just announced there's going to be over a million uh, migrants coming from Central America that we're going to pick up crossing the border, I think the answer is no. Our, our policies are not deterring people from making the trip. Um, I would just give you kind of a summary slide here, the things that have happened over the last you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, in the Bahamas, we've helped out. A lot of drugs that we picked up off the streets, those numbers are staggering. Uh, these numbers are even more staggering, the amount of lives that have been saved. Yeah, that's a conservative estimate. It does not include you know, the amounts of people that are deterred from leaving in the first place. There's probably twice as many. So when it comes to saving lives, that's what it's really all about. And I think these policies have been really, really um, I just close by going back to our little surface effect ships and whatever happened to them, whatever became of them. They were bought, as you recall, as a temporary measure as the Coast Guard was investing in better patrol boats. We now have a really massive fleet of fast, beautiful, speedy, wonderful single hull patrol boats. But these things lasted in the fleet for 12 years, and during that time, they became the most prolific drug busting cutters in the fleet. So they really, really proved their worth. They got a lot and a lot of these uh, seizures, over 100 total. Uh, but I think the real bottom line for me in researching this book and kind of getting in touch with the people who were there is, is the personnel side. These ships are great, but these people are amazing. And the fact that America has a volunteer force like our Coast Guard willing to go out there in harm's way and put themselves in very, very dangerous situations, whether it's to seize drugs or whether it's to save lives. Is, is really a testimony to the great spirit of this nation. So with that, I would uh, be glad to answer any questions you might have. Anybody? Yes, sir. Um, so if we're getting access to, um, you know, all the way out to Chile, um, what has been the response besides just the availability of the waters? Has there been an uptick in them actually, the foreign governments actually spending money on uh, interdiction or any, I mean, is it all on us? Yeah, uh, yes. The answer is yes. They've all pretty much stepped up now. You know, it's all relative. Uh, but if you go back 30 years, my guess is the Colombian Navy, the Ecuadorian Navy, the Costa Rican armed forces, whatever, weren't doing a whole lot. All of them are involved now, uh, to various degrees. There's also what's called in-country eradication, where you know the best way to stop the drugs from flowing is to not allow them to be produced in the first place. That's really, really hard, because if you, I mean, it sounds easier than it is. Oh, you just find where they're growing the coca, and you go out there, and you spray, or you 
cut down the plants. But you're talking literally millions of square miles of jungle. And the smugglers are smart. I mean, the plantations in, for example, Jamaica, there's some marijuana plantations, they've learned how to hide those under certain canopies, you know, where, which are almost impossible to see from the air. So how do you even find where the bad guys are? Uh, so, so the answer is yes. Every country pretty much in this hemisphere has stepped up to the plate. The real question is, you know, can you keep the pressure on to the point where you shut down networks? Now, I'll, I'll go a little further. One of the questions I usually get asked is, you know, why are we wasting our money and time with this? You know, because we're never going to get enough to really shut down the supplies. We're still going to have users. And that's a really good point. I mean, is this worth it? And I would just say there's a good historical example is if you kind of allow it smuggling to just kind of do its thing. That's Miami in the early 80s. I mean, it was a much more violent place than Miami of today is. Uh, it's the Bahamas of the late 1970s. It's Colombia, uh, all the way up to about 10 years ago, where the drug smugglers really were able to influence all sorts of things. They had a lot of politicians in their pocket. They were able to uh, take over entire towns and regions. They were coupled with the, uh, the terrorist groups, the, the, the FARC. You know, they, they used cocaine to fund their operations. So this is all bad stuff, and if you leave the, if you take the pressure off, it's going to get worse. I mean, I guess you could then just say let's legalize everything and let everyone in America walk around stoned all day, but that's probably not a good answer either. It's a tough one. Anyways, I went way beyond the question. So, yes, sir. Uh, I heard uh, the smuggling, beginning to smuggle with with a beach craft or a sm small airplane. Uh, things like that. Yeah, and I didn't talk about the aerial side of this. That was also a big thing that was happening uh, up until probably 15 years ago uh, when we got NORAD and the Air Force involved. It was back in the day, it was pretty easy to take a Cessna and fly to the Bahamas or maybe from the Bahamas to the U.S. They had a technique, it was called an airdrop, where you would take a ton of whatever contraband you had, you would go to a certain point, you'd circle around and drop it out of the airplane and the boats would pick it up. Uh, they actually perfected that to make sure that the, the marijuana cocaine floated, because if you drop it in the sand, it's kind of a waste. Um, there's one funny story in the book. We were out on patrol off of Miami, and it was, it was the worst weather I had ever seen in these ships. It was probably running close to 20-foot seas, and really, really bad weather. And in the middle of this storm, we found a guy in a 15-foot boat just sitting there doing little circles, waiting for his airdrop. I mean, they will smuggle in any conditions, and the odds of us even stumbling on this guy were, were remarkably small. So we had to chase him off and send him home. But I mean, that's what these people will do anything to make their bucks. And so, yeah, there was a lot of air smuggling. What happened is when DOD got involved, they started to really ramp up. Uh, now, pretty much everything, especially post 9 11, every aircraft that's coming towards the U.S. gets tracked. And you're not going to get anywhere near the U.S. without, you know, having an F-15 or an F-35 intercepting you if you're a suspicious aircraft. That doesn't mean they're not doing it out in the Bahamas and other places like that, but you can't really get close to the U.S. shore right now. Yes, ma'am. So, has uh, smuggling of pot been reduced so that they can smuggle more cocaine in? Yes. Okay, because now pot is legal, so why so not? Yeah, and, and it's a good good point. I mean, um, there was kind of a tipping point in the mid-80s where it went from mostly marijuana to mostly cocaine, and that's where we are today. So 
for every you know ton of cocaine we're picking up at sea, we're probably getting 100 pounds of marijuana. Now, there are different types of marijuana. You know, is is I hope you don't know too well, uh, and yeah, you know some of the stuff grown overseas is certain strains that people want. So there's always going to be that business. The Jamaican marijuana, you know, is very popular with certain crowds. So uh, you're still going to have the smuggling. Um, and again, even if you legalize it all, don't forget you're going to have people trying to get around the customs duties and around the other duties, you know, all the taxes. So you're always going to have some sort of underground drug network. And you got to worry about even if you legalize it, you know, what do you do with the 15-year-old that wants to smoke or the 12-year-old? There's going to be a dividing line between adults and kids. And so you're still going to have law enforcement authority of some sort. It's, like I said, there's probably no messier social issue than what to do about illegal drugs. Quite frankly, a lot of people are libertarians say, hey, do whatever you want with your body. Other people are like Puritans, they can't do anything. You know, as someone who has been a practitioner in this, I know that the people who smuggle tend to be not nice. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of other crimes associated with it, and it's just not a good crowd to hang out with. Your lifespan as a smuggler is not long. I mean, I mean, a lot of these people that are in the drug trade, they just don't last too long. I mean, we arrested one group uh, when we went to trial. One guy didn't show up. That's because they found him dead in his backyard. Somebody put a bullet in his head. They didn't want him testifying. So these are not typically nice people in the smuggling business. Anybody else? Um, yes, sir. I have a question about how is the Coast Guard responding to um, things coming from Eastern Asia, like fentanyl precursors and methamphetamine precursors? That, that's a real hard one, and that's mostly a land border issue with the Customs Service. So uh, just to kind of review, you know, Coast Guard is doing the maritime stuff with help from Customs. They do that as well. But anything that goes to a port of entry, whether it's in a shipping container, whether it's in a backpack crossing the border from Tijuana, uh, the U.S. Customs Service is, is going to inspect you. And that's where they get most of the fentanyl uh, seizures is, is in the mail, uh, FedEx. I mean, those, I mean, the U.S. mail, the FedEx folks, they're all on the alert for this. They've got certain programs in place to look for it. Uh, so we, of course, will look for it, but it, it's such a potent drug, and even a tiny bit is worth so much. How do you find it on a 400-foot ship or even a 50-foot ship? It's very, very hard. You know, the nice thing about marijuana when you're in the interdiction business is it's bulky. You know, 50 pounds is a big square. Cocaine, you know, kilo, about two pounds, is about this big. So that's not quite as uh, easy to find. But fentanyl and you know, heroin, things like that, a tiny bit, you know, something that fits in, you know, you know a little tin is, is worth, you know, thousands of dollars. So it's tough. Yes, ma'am. I don't know if I should tell you this story or not. A long time ago, I had a well, a boyfriend, who I met in Istanbul because I was going overland to India. Friend said, take care of her, we'll meet in Delhi because it was Ramadan, so we didn't have visas. I didn't know until much later that John had just come out of prison in Sweden for smuggling pot, I, I, I think, from India back to Europe. Anyway, that's Part of the story. Well, later on, he did he did get caught coming back into America with phony passports and money he had taken out of the bank in Switzerland and all these things. I was so naive, didn't know anything. He wound up in prison in the states for two years, 
when he got out, we moved up to Northern California. By this time, I kind of knew what he was like. And, uh, and then I found out something else about him. I said, don't. I never want to see you again. What he did was he went back to Afghanistan. I don't have law enforcement authority, so I can't throw you in cuffs. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. He had been in the Coast Guard. Oh. Yes. Now, how he left the Coast Guard, I don't know. I don't know any of that, but I know he had been in the Coast Guard. He was stationed up in um, the Seattle way north, up there, Pacific Northwest. And this might apply to fentanyl coming in. He went back to Afghanistan. He, oh, this is so strange. He got some kind of woman's corset. He was experimenting with bringing back vials of hash oil. And evidently, because he knew all the ways to get into the Pacific Northwest without encountering customs, he actually made it back into the States with a corset full of little vials of hash oil. Well, I can tell you this is um, the U.S. coastline, if you count all the jags and crags and whatever, is yeah. about 95,000 miles, yeah. all the rivers. And there's 41,000 coasties protecting it, so we can do the math. You can get by. And that's oh, yeah. why, you know, yeah. kind of eternal vigilance is the only yeah, way to, yeah. for, for us to do our job. Yeah. But, you know, you've also got multiple layers in the internet. You know, you've got your, everything from your local street cops all the way to people down in the source countries who are trying to eradicate. So. And he was working by himself. He was just one individual who was going to make enough money so that he could retire right. or something, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. never saw him again, but I did hear that he did manage to get back into the country. So if he can do it with hash oil. Yep. Then people in China, Asia, can do the same thing with fentanyl. Yeah, and they're going to try it every single day because yeah. there's money to be made. That's right. just the human condition. Um, yeah. Anyways, any other questions? Yeah, last question. Yes. What's the uh, what's the relationship like with other uh, IC members? It's good. Uh, the Coast Guard actually was not part of the IC until two thousand and. No, it's 2000, right before 9-11. And uh, kind of, people were like, well, why do you need the Coast Guard in? But they became an, an official IC member. Uh, in fact, one of our first heads of Intel, once we became a member of the IC, was a woman named Fran Townsend, who later went to become President Bush's Homeland Security Advisor. I mean, she was a really smart woman. She had worked for the Clinton administration, for Janet Reno. She came to us. Uh, and so she really helped she and others after her really helped get our program up and running. So the Coast Guard is, is fully integrated. And you know how complex the IC is. I mean, it's, you know, was it 17 different members now? I forget the number. Uh, and, you know, everyone's got their own ways of doing business a little bit. And there's, you know, sometimes there's rivalries. We've never seen it that way. You know, we mostly a producer of Intel that we pass in, and of course, any good stuff. But as you've seen, in the Eastern Pacific right now, virtually every seizure we make is intelligence-based through all the various sources that we're getting it from, which we probably can't talk about here. So this is all good news, and I think it's uh, really helped the nation. You know, you got to worry about, you know, if you hear that the bad guys are trying to move in a nuclear bomb or 
WMD of some sort or biochemicals or whatever, can you find them? Do you have the resources and the ability? One thing that's come out of the drug war is the interagency team that's out there has gotten really, really good at this. And again, if you know, if you've got the intel, you can almost always get the guys if you've got the assets in place. If it was something like a serious issue like a WMD, of course you have the assets. Um, that was not the case. I mean, uh, if you go back to the 1980s, Customs and Coast Guard competed. I mean, we were intercepted on our boats. We were intercepted by Coast, uh, Customs every now and then, and they didn't know we were out there. And sometimes we'd intercept them because we didn't know they were out. We didn't talk. We were in competition in a way. You know, they were part of the Department of Treasury. We were part of the Department of Transportation. Now we're both in Homeland Security. We have no choice but to talk. We all kind of work for a common operational commander, and it really has really helped. But the Joint Interagency Task Force in Key West that kind of runs the drug war has been remarkably effective in bringing in the five military services, DEA, FBI, other nations all into the same fight in a very integrated manner. And it's remarkably, remarkable how good they've gotten at this. So if you have a real challenge to national security, you take that exact same model and you apply it to it and it works. So uh, I think that this one of the greatest kind of unsung benefits of this whole war on drugs is how well the government now works together. So I think with that, I think we have to quit because we're out of time. So thank you very much. <laughs>